Last week, in following Joshua on this journey to the Promised Land, we saw how the character failure of Achan led to the defeat of the army and the death of innocent uh, men as the people of Israel tried to take the fortified city of Ai. Well, because of Joshua's character, they got another chance. And God gives Joshua a very strange battle plan. Joshua is to take a small force and make a suicide attack on the city, the fortified city. When the people in the fortified city see that they greatly outnumber the Israelites, they will open the gates and pursue Joshua uh, to kill him and his soldiers. It's at this point that Joshua, if he's still living, will lead them in to an ambush. On the video screens this morning, David Reed talks about another improbable raid on a fortified city as he talks about Jimmy Doolittle's raid over Tokyo. There's a commander that became very famous during World War II. Uh, they called him Jimmy Doolittle. Uh, he ultimately uh, got his fourth star at the age of 89 as an acknowledgement of the, the greatness of this man and his impact on the history of uh, uh, air warfare. But the case I'm thinking about was um, in uh, December 1941, uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and uh, created great destruction uh, of that area and the naval power that we had stationed there. And so we entered World War II as a result of that specific uh, attack by the Japanese. And Franklin Roosevelt, among other things, uh, wanted to do something that would retaliate in a way that would let the Japanese know that they could not uh, attack us with impunity. And he asked um, uh, General Hap Arnold if he had a way to extend uh, air power uh, to attack Tokyo. Of course, the initial thought would be, well, we use the Navy, but the Navy's airplanes weren't long enough in their range and couldn't carry a big enough bomb load. So there was a, a Navy captain that worked on the staff uh, in Washington that said, well, what about using uh, an Air Force bomber? They can carry a bigger load, and we'll just uh, fly them off a carrier, and uh, they can reach it. And, of course, that was the first time anybody had thought of that. But it entailed a great deal of risk. A B-25 bomber, which is what they were talking about, a twin-engine medium bomber, was not built to fly off uh, a short field, certainly not one that's only 500 feet long. And so Jimmy Doolittle, uh, who had become uh, well-known for his bravado and uh, his uh, intellect, had, a, uh, had gotten one of the early degrees in uh, aeronautical engineering, engineering, he had a PhD, was serving on the staff, and Hap Arnold asked him if he could figure out how to do this, that is, fly a, a bomber off a carrier so they could reach Tokyo. He says, not only can I figure out how to do it, I think we can, and I want to lead the force. And uh, so Jimmy Doolittle, over the next... Uh, uh, 140 days got a group of men and, and experimented and trained them 
and refitted the airplanes and ultimately loaded 18 B-25s on the aircraft carrier Hornet, and they steamed out on the mission to raid Tokyo. According to his very carefully plotted out uh, fuel calculations, uh, they could reach Tokyo if they got within 600 miles, uh, but they couldn't reach their base in China, which was their landing point. They would not be able to land on carriers. So they, uh, they decided they could get there if they were uh, at least 600 miles from Tokyo. It would have been better at 500, which was the plan. Unfortunately, the carrier group was spotted by a Japanese picket ship when they were still more than 600 miles. Uh, Admiral Bull Halsey gave the order to, to launch the ships uh, as soon as they could. And so they were more than 600 miles off the coast of, of Japan when Doolittle, in the first airplane, took his first airplane off and 17 others followed. They all reached the target and none of them uh, reached the base that was their intended landing point in China. One landed in Vladivostok in Russia and the crew was interned for uh, several years, finally made their way back to the United States in 1943. The other crews all crash landed or bailed out of their airplanes because they couldn't reach uh, uh, their base in China. A good number of those uh, landed in Japanese-held territory, and the Japanese, uh, the Chinese in that area protected them, hid them, and got them evacuated before the Japanese could get to them. Uh, several of the flyers that were injured uh, were captured by Japanese and later spent some terrible years in Japanese prisons uh, before they were liberated. Some of the prisoners died. The amazing thing about this story, I think, to me, is that at a tremendous risk, uh, Doolittle and his raiders uh, gave themselves so that uh, the people of the United States and our allies would know that Japan, uh, Japan could not attack with impunity. That particular raid caused the Japanese commanders, Yamamoto specifically, to extend their forces out to Midway. Uh, and later in the war, just a few months later, the battle at Midway turned the tide in the Pacific. Jimmy Doolittle and Raider. Uh, Jimmy got home and thought, uh, I'm in real trouble because I've lost so many men and we didn't uh, do exactly what we were supposed to. They all bombed Tokyo. Uh, he was greeted with uh, a great uh, celebration and he himself was given uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor. 18 planes take off from the USS Hornet on what is essentially a one-way trip. Not enough fuel to find a safe landing spot. Have you ever been on a trip that you knew was one way? Maybe you left one town and moved to another. Or maybe you changed jobs knowing you could never go back to the old job. Several Saturdays a year on a Saturday afternoon or evening, I sit here and I watch the bride and groom take a one-way trip down the aisle. There's no going back. And when they go back down that aisle, they're no longer single. If you've ever had children, you know that's the ultimate one-way trip. There's no going back to not having that child. 
This church exists in this location because we took a one-way trip, a mile and a half from Broadway to Bassey, at a time when statistics showed that less than half of the church relocations attempted nationwide succeeded. But there was no going back. seems to me that one of the things that characterizes these one-way trips is a high degree of risk. They all involve a lot of risk. And Joshua's taking what could be a one-way trip this morning, attacking with a small armed group, a fortified city. And he has no way of knowing whether he'll make it back out of there alive to lead them into the ambush. It's a very high risk situation. A lot of life is like that. It's not just the military where risk is often rewarded with great victory, though. We can certainly... See examples in military history and examples in people today of uh, the ability to risk a lot. You've probably either seen in person or heard of the coat of George Washington, which has seven bullet holes in it. A leader not content to stay in the background, but a leader out in front taking the risk with his troops. I see the same thing in, the, in biblical history. The leaders of God's people always out front taking the risk. Moses takes a big one-way trip from the burning bush in Sinai back across the desert to Egypt to face the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh. It is quite likely a one-way trip. Daniel takes what may very well be a one-way trip into the lion's den. And then the young boy David leaves his family and leaves his sheep and takes what could be a one-way trip into the Jezreel Valley to take on the giant Goliath. But it's not just in the Bible, and it's not just in military history where we see the uh, wonderful things that come from risk. We can look at our own history of exploration, whether it starts with uh, Christopher Columbus who sailed off the map, or or go on with the early astronauts who were called in the book and the movie, the right to have the right stuff. We see so much of the advances in humankind are made because people take real risks. We see it in a lot of the services and businesses that you and I enjoy. And uh, when a person starts a business, it often is a one-way trip with uh, no turning back. And it do- you don't always know starting the business whether it will succeed or not. But often the risk is rewarded. So often, risk is essential to moving the world and people forward. And I want to say to you this morning that risk is a major part of our spiritual journey in our life with God. Because God will always call us from where we are to new places. And God will always call us to be more than we are right now. So we'll always be leaving the known, moving toward the unknown. But as I think about the benefits of risk, I can't help but think how in my life, I'm not necessarily risk avoidant, but I'm certainly risk averse. And and I think of the times that I, I could have risked and and didn't. And sometimes I think, well, my retirement nest egg would be a lot bigger if I'd taken some more risks earlier on. Or I think of that I might have been a different athlete in college tennis if I would have had a riskier style of play. Or even more to my chagrin, how I might have had deeper and more numerous friendships had I been willing to take more risks. I know this about myself, that I don't willingly risk. But my hunch this morning is that you're a lot like I am and that you don't always think of risk and risk-taking as your first and best option. So this is my encouragement. I'd like to encourage you to take the risks that God will call you to take to move forward in your life with God and your reaching out to others. 
And I want to give you four things that I think will help you move forward in risk. The first thing is this. As I look at Joshua and the other great people of Scripture, I notice that they all seem to have the same unshakable conviction. And it's put this way by another writer who says that the people of God can suffer no irredeemable harm in their life. No irredeemable harm will befall those who worship and walk with God. In other words, there's nothing that we can lose in the risk that God cannot replace and with a lot more of that, including our very lives. I'm not suggesting for a moment that harm will not come to those who follow God. Harm may very well come to those that follow God. But I'm suggesting that the harm is not irredeemable. And whatever is lost is not beyond replacement. God will replace with more and with, with better. I think Jesus himself had that conviction that, uh, as Dallas Willard puts it, he knew that the universe was a safe place to be in the, in the hands of God. Jesus certainly suffered harm, but he was willing to risk that harm because ultimately he knew that God could triumph over that harm. So to me, taking a risk first starts with the conviction that there's nothing I can lose that God cannot replace. And then it moves on simply to an act of courage. Churchill said rightly years ago that, that courage was the first, the greatest of all virtues because every other virtue will hinge on that virtue. You will need courage to practice every other virtue. So one, like Joshua, must show the courage of their conviction. But two other things jump out at me this morning as I think about risk. And the, one of them is this, that I think we need to know for whom we are risking. You need someone to risk for. Or something to risk for. Thomas Cahill, the historian, in describing the period of the Jews between the Old and New Testament when they are under Greek rule. And the rule is, is terrible. Uh, Jews are killed right and left. They're, they are forbidden to circumcise their children. A statue of Zeus is set up in the temple of God. Solomon's temple has a statue of Zeus in it. Pigs are butchered and sacrificed in that temple. An anathema to the people of God. And finally, under the Maccabeans, the Jews revolt. And Cahill's summary of this is, finally there comes a point when a people can take no more humiliation to their way of life. And so they knew for what they were risking when the Maccabeans revolted against their Greek rulers, they were risking their, for their way of life. The life, that, their ability to worship at their God and practice their faith. And as you may know, they ended up victorious, and the Jews celebrate this every year in the uh, festival that we call Hanukkah. It celebrates that risk that was rewarded with a great victory. I think about James J. Braddock. You may have uh, seen his story in the movie The Cinderella Man. Boxer uh, comes out of retirement, a great risk against the odds, and they ask him why he's fighting. And his answer is very succinct. He says, I'm fighting for milk. He knows for whom he's fighting. He's fighting for his family to put food on the table for them. He knows what the risk is for. And several years ago, on September 11th, if you would have stopped the firemen on their way up the stairs of the World Trade Center while other people are as fast as they can going down the stairs, they would be able to tell you plainly why they climbed those stairs. It is for the lives of other people. 
We must have some idea for whom we are risking. And then finally, I noticed this, that you have to have an idea of what, what the end of the risk will be. What will be the reward? What will be the goal of the risk? Moses knows why he's going face to face with Pharaoh. It is for the freedom of his people. That will be the reward. They will be made free. Joshua knows why he's leading this suicide raid on a fortified city. It's so that his people can inhabit the promised land. The reward is the promised land. A woman who's not worked outside of the home for most of her life and then takes a job and then later takes a second job and you ask her why and she knows the reward. It's so my son can have a college education, she will tell you. She knows the goal. She knows what's at the end of the risk, the reward that is to be gained. We need to understand for whom we risk and what the risk will yield for us. And this all comes together this morning for me as we start Holy Week in the life of Jesus Jesus had a conviction, as I've mentioned, that the world in God's hands was a safe place to be. That harm may come to him, but it would not beyond, be beyond God's ability to redeem and to use. And out of that conviction, Jesus has the courage to go to the cross. And you don't need to re-rent the DVD of The Passion of the Christ to understand the kind of courage that it takes to go to the cross. And Jesus knows for whom he is going to the cross, taking this risk. It is for every person in this room And he knows better than anyone what the rewards are. They will be a forgiveness and a pardon for us for all of our life that has failed to be what God created it to be. And he knows ultimately that the reward is a life that is eternal with him and all those who love God. It all comes together in that moment when he risks on our behalf. I'm reminded of what happened some years later. One of the leaders in the early church during the era when Romans ruled the world was a man named Polycarp. More than 90 years old, this bishop is arrested. And he's given a pretty easy choice, it seems. You can burn incense to the emperor, deny Jesus, and live. Or you can fail to do these things and die. And there it is. It's maybe not an easy choice, but it's a basic choice. It's, It's real clear one way or the other. And so they call on him to deny Jesus, and he says this, for 90 years he has not denied me, why should I deny him? They give him another opportunity, he refuses. A third opportunity, he refuses. And so finally they say, all right, we're going to nail you to this stake, and we will burn you to death. And his response is, you don't need to use any nails. The grace and love of God will hold me there. And he goes to the stake. And I thought, That's exactly what happened on Good Friday. Jesus goes, as you know, to the cross, and they don't need nails to put him there. He's put there and held there and takes that risk because the love that he has for you, for me, for the world. And the love not only takes him there, but it holds him there. The great day of service is coming in two weeks. This week is Holy Week. Opportunities will abound for us to risk for others. And my question is simply this. Where is it that the love of God will take you and hold you in the days ahead?